Welcome to the Security Siren Getty. We're your hosts, David Square and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical applications that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. After Joe Sullivan gets out of prison, he's probably going to have some trouble finding a role as a CISO. Who'd want to hire a convicted felon as a CISO? Maybe Revo will still be hiring then. Oh, with any luck, they say that ransomware is taking a hit since the <laughs> Ukrainian invasion. Maybe True. you won't be able to get a job there either. Actually, you know what? That's, that's probably me being even too... I'm sure there will be people that'll be happy to hire a CISO that'll lie to auditors. And... <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, after all, the, you know, you know mob has consigliaries or whatever for mm. their lawyers. So yeah. there's a service for everybody. Everyone, you know, or everybody needs that kind of service. Yep. Probably pays better too. Anyways, no, <laughs> we are. I'm sure it's tax-free. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we are talking Uber today. We have two articles from Uber. The first one is, as I'm sure anybody who's been paying attention to the news can guess, about the Uber breach and the recent charging and conviction of the chief security officer from Uber, Joe Sullivan. The article is titled The Fallout from the First Trial of a Corporate Executive for Covering Up a Data Breach from Lawfare Blog, which is David's favorite blog, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, not going to comment other than say they suck. But So I could not write a better summary than the one from the article. So, quote, Uber's former chief security officer, Joe Sullivan, was found guilty on October 5th of obstruction of justice and misprision of a felony based on what the Justice Department called his attempted cover-up of the 2016 hack of Uber, end quote. As I uh, mentioned in there, there are two charges in there. The first one, obstruction of justice, relates to not telling the FTC about the incident that occurred specifically after they asked about it. So they asked about one incident, the 2014 intrusion, and then... 10 days afterwards, he found out about a second intrusion, and they're saying the obstruction of justice is because he didn't tell them about that one. Misprision of a felony is not telling police about the hack. It stems from an old English common law about crying for help if someone witnesses a crime. That's a little more complicated than that, but we'll get into it in a minute. Finally, there is a law that requires critical infrastructure companies to report incidents, but it doesn't take effect until later. The law was passed, but the reg regulations have not been interpreted and completed and documented, so there is no, there's no separate requirement for critical infrastructure companies to report incidents. Well, even when that, that, uh, that does take effect, it doesn't require reporting to the Justice Department, though. Yeah, that would, um, yep. So discussion points, let's talk about the obstruction of justice item. So the FTC was investigating Uber because of the separate incident that happened in 2014. This was the pre-existing investigation Sullivan was convicted of obstructing. He received word from the attacker 10 days after he told the FTC there were no new incidents. The attacker was like, hey, I got your stuff. <laughs> I know, right? And justice is saying, yeah, can you imagine like in his head, he's like, are you effing kidding me? Why now? Oh, you know, what would be even more hilarious is he's in the conference room with the FTC. <laughs> he, gets and he gets a, a phone call. And like, <laughs> yeah. hey, we got a breach. He's like, oh. So justice is saying that he had a duty to report it while the investigation with the FTC was ongoing. Uh, and, and there's a quote from the article here. Sullivan continued to work with the Uber lawyers handling or overseeing that inquiry, including the general counsel of Uber, and never mentioned the incident to them. 
No, he didn't even inform Uber's own legal team well, of he, the second breach, according to according to this guy. <laughs> well, so that's what. I, I, yeah, there's a separate article from a few from earlier in the case where the general counsel said that he never told her until like a year afterwards. I think she said she learned about it in 2017. But one of the Uber lawyers wrote the NDA with the hacker. So at least one of the lawyers was involved. But you're right. It may not be the team. It may not have been the manager. It may not have been a director. Or officially the office, the, right. you know, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. the uh, general counsel office at Uber. Yep. yep. Yeah. It didn't say, I don't think the other article said where the, where the, where he worked for at Uber, the lawyer that wrote up the NDA. So, yeah. No, I mean, he could just pull him aside in the hallway that, Hey, I need you to write this thing by the way, keep it hush hush or something. Yeah, he did. Uh, that was actually used as evidence against him is that Joe Sullivan did later when we talk about the Miss Brizian, that was the, that was part of it was that he sent everybody emails saying, you know, don't tell anybody about this, this investigation is super secret. We'll talk about that in a second. Do you want to do the takeaway here? I think this is your note or just, this is mine. Oh, that's my note. <laughs> I don't even remember what. <laughs> so the important takeaway I think here for companies is that quote a pre-existing and ongoing regulatory investigation into a previous incident or a company's data security practices can trigger a duty to disclose any new incidents to that same regulator end quote. That's kind of interesting to me. I don't know that I would have picked that up. I would have been like, well, this investigation is about the previous one and this is unrelated. Right. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing for the, the obstruction is the fact that he knew about the second one and didn't report it to the regulator while they were investigating the first one. Well, that, so but no, but the, that's yeah, why he's saying there's yeah. a duty to report. Yeah, but that's my thing is, that's what I was saying is I don't know that I would have mentally put that together if one investigator, I would have been like, no, this investigation is for this previous thing. It's unrelated to this current thing. I see what you're saying, right. Yeah, like it just, although honestly, if they're just investigating the data security practices <clears throat> in general, I can see where that would be related. Right. So and I'm author, not reporting the second one till I get caught for it. The author wants a written policy from justice on when updates need to be made. I mean, that seems fine. That would also be awesome to get some clarification on that. Nobody wants to be the first person to be charged to find out that's how that's supposed to work. Yeah. But I mean, the government can write down whatever it wants, but that doesn't mean that they're going to follow <laughs> whatever they write down. Mm -hmm. That's fair. And he also pointed out that this whole thing has deeper implications. And we've kind of talked about this before about being able to shield some parts of your IR from discovery in the event of a, a, a lawsuit or anything like that as a result of a data breach due to the attorney client privilege. If you get the lawyers involved early enough in the. Yeah, we have discussed this several times. And I still don't know where the right answer is because I've def we've definitely seen articles where it's been like attorney-client privilege doesn't work the way you think it does. Like it's not enough to just CC a lawyer. Like that doesn't just poof attorney-client privilege. Like they have to be giving advice. I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff that's potentially involved in there. Right. But this guy who is a lawyer that wrote this article is suggesting that the very implication of this could impede your ability to do that, regardless of whether you did it the correct way, as we've talked about before, not using outside counsel and ensuring that it's a, it's an actual attorney work product, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's the point he's trying to make there. That's fair. Yeah. So the second crime, Miss Prisian, which is a weird word, this crime specific, like I said, it's an older crime. It specifically requires that one be aware of a federal crime, and then there needs to be an affirmative act 
to conceal. This is apparently an old and rarely used crime that I've never heard of, although admittedly I haven't spent much time in courts. And in this case, they're saying that keeping quiet about it is the affirmative act. And they had a couple items in here. They specifically said, the author said it's based on changing the language of the NDA. Apparently the lawyer wrote it and then edited it so that it made it seem like it was a bug bounty and a legitimate bug bounty and not an attack. And they also introduced as evidence emails from internally with things like, you know, we need to control the information. We can't let this get out. But honestly, that seems normal for investigations. And IR, IR tends to be pretty heavily compartmented because there's potentially sensitive information in there and it may have a impact on the valuation of the company if it's a publicly traded company, et cetera, et cetera. So really that didn't seem all that convincing to me as evidence that he was trying to hide it. I mean, he was trying yeah. to hide it, but that's normal. <laughs> Well, in the early parts of an investigation as well, you can't rule out with any kind of certainty that there isn't no insider part of it. Yeah, yeah. I should have twigged on that immediately. So so my question here is if we have to... Well, so when, when I initially read this, I initially heard a podcast about this first and then I read the article. If that is considered to be enough evidence that to convict somebody of misprision, not telling somebody about a federal crime, which hacking is, and concealing it by sending emails to people saying, don't talk about this. I, I have to wonder how this is going to affect IR going forward. If we have to report all federal crimes, which again, there's not, I'm, I'm sure that most of the company is not, you know, criming any federal, federal related crimes. But if you're an IR, you probably see a felony every day, if not multiple times a day. Right, because as was pointed out by the lawyer that wrote this, any com any company that, that learns it was a victim of an actual crime or attempted computer intrusion could possibly fall into this category. Yeah, the attempted part makes me wonder, actually. So I know the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act says that the crime is when you access a computer that you're not supposed to, but there's so many different stages here. I'm curious where, because some of these are pretty... So where would this become a reportable crime? Is it when the attacker stands up the infrastructure? If you know your threat hunters find infrastructure, yeah. What if you're, you know, I didn't even think about this in the notes, but what if your your threat intel guy finds that somebody stood up infrastructure, pretending to be Office three sixty five and fished somebody else because of a subdomain or something? Do you have a responsibility to report that? Uh, what about when the attacker sends the actual phishing email? Is that when the crime occurs, or is that not a not a crime? When the user clicks on the email, is that the and then their credentials are stolen. Or is it when you actually use the credentials to log into their O365 account or run the malware? Or or even when you run the malware, is that accessing it? Or do you have to establish C2? I, I, I don't know which one of these is a place where now I guess we're supposed to start reporting these things. Well, all this stuff could end up being flushed out in precedent if this concept of the, the misprision or whatever takes hold and the Justice Department starts harping on this more because yeah. the more cases they bring with this as a charge, the more we're going to get down into precedent saying at this point is when we determine that this is when the felony took place and your failure to report it constitutes the crime. And that annoys me to know <laughs> because I don't want to find out through people being punished. Just tell me. <laughs> Well, I mean, and that goes back to the the author saying, oh, I want a written policy, you know, but I mean, everybody who's ever worked at a company knows that policies are written and policies are disregarded <laughs> or not followed. So even if the Justice Department 
decided that they were going to write a policy and say, this is the way we're going to do it. It doesn't mean they're going to, they're, they're, there's no legal obligation for them to follow that policy because that's not the way the law is written. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. So let's say that the justice department does decide that we need to start reporting these. I'm curious now if IR and SOC folks will now be chargeable for not reporting this, or do we need to, because trying to report these manually be a nightmare. You'd almost immediately see, you know, every automation and ticketing tool develop a little module to automatically submit stuff, you know, at the click of a button to the government. But then aren't we just spamming them? There's no way they could handle all of these actual crimes. Yeah. Well, it depends on the the risk tolerance for the for the company. What they may do instead is that the IR department has to run everything through the legal department. So Oof. the legal department makes the decision about its reportability or not. Well, I don't know. This could get really ugly. Running a jobs campaign for lawyers because we don't have enough lawyers, obviously. No, certainly not. Everyone knows that. <laughs> well, at the bottom of the ocean. Just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. The the lawyers are, and then you didn't mention this, but the lawyers may come back and tell you that the especially if individuals can be charged for not reporting, they may tell you the level of risk to the company is actually lower to stop detecting so much stuff like focus on the really important stuff yeah you can't report on what you don't know yeah oh man that could get really bad too yeah well you know what though i've been i've I've told several people this probably mentioned on the podcast too like if you do your it health correctly your patching and your you know asset management and your software management like 90 percent of ir goes away so I'd love for this to actually, you know, force that type of thing to happen, but there's no way that's going to happen. There's too much, too much technical debt, too many years of accumulated nonsense and dross. Uh, I had another question about this. What about the CEO and the chief counsel's responsibility? Why is the CSO being charged? And well, the chief counsel says she didn't hear about it till 2017 and there's no proof otherwise. Sullivan told people at Uber that he had, you know, been briefing the CEO on it, but there's no proof. There's nothing written down. So it looks to me like Sullivan is taking the fall because he is the highest one where there is evidence, which makes me wonder if it would have been the CEO if there was evidence or would it be both of them? Or let's say that he did go to the chief counsel and the CEO and they decided together because I had seen that in another article, though I guess that was just supposition. Would all three of them be charged or would the CEO be charged because he's ultimately responsible? I don't know. Hmm. Depends on the prosecutor, probably. Damn it. This could have been one of those situations where the CEO and the chief counsel were both like, we don't want to hear anything about this in writing. Yeah. You know, verbal briefs only or something like that, just to protect themselves. I mean, but I would imagine that Sullivan would have been smart enough to say, I'm not the only one going on with the ship here. <laughs> right. But it's hard to say. Yeah, I don't know. Well, he probably never thought there'd be a chance that he'd go to jail for this, right? Like mm, nobody's ever been charged. This is straight out of left field. Right. So, but yeah, that definitely speaks to the CEO and the and the chief counsel's forethought, if so. I do want to mention there was an Uber attorney, I mentioned this before, who was involved in the discussions and drafting the NDA. He was given immunity for testifying because he was not high enough to be the big fish that they wanted to take out. Yeah, he was not a C-level. So like, nope. eh, we're not going to bother prosecuting this guy. Which is probably good news for IR folks, because basically if they come after you for not reporting it, hopefully you can, you know, roll over on your CISO. Yeah. Keep those emails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep a paper trail. 
you see the emails disappear out of your inbox one day. You're like, whoa. Oh. Yep. Oh. Uh, so there's a fourth item in here that was kind of a side note, but it was a little bit interesting. Circia, Sertia. I don't know how we're supposed to pronounce that acronym, but Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. Apparently, this has kicked off a turf fight between Justice and Homeland Security because it is sending incident reports to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, instead of to Justice. And the reporting to CISA makes incident reports immune from civil discovery. And what that means is that companies will report to CISA and not to Justice because the incident reports will be kept closer hold by CISA and will not be publicly available in a discovery in a lawsuit. Justice believes this means that companies will report to CISA and not to Justice because they want to keep their data secret. And the author is proposing that this is Justice making making an example of Joe Sullivan to try and force companies to report to Justice as well. You know, that, that, you know, that's terrible, but this is not the first time we've seen the Justice Department try to make so- an example of somebody instead of actually trying to achieve justice. Well, you know, in every, every totalitarian country, there's always a Department of Justice. Well, not necessarily. During the French Revolution, it was safety. Hmm. That sounds benign. I'm sure it was harmless. Oh, sure. It didn't cut anybody's head off at all. <laughs> the author proposing that this is making an example of Sullivan, I think, well, considering we actually haven't seen sentencing yet, maybe this is a, a little bit preemptive on my part, but at least the second charge for not reporting could just be a fine. They don't have to send him to prison for that. In the in the the text of the law from, what is it, USC section four, it says that no more than three years or a fine could be imposed for conviction under the Melprisium. So if he actually goes to prison for this versus simply giving him a fine for it, I think that is certainly the Justice Department making an example of him to whoever they think needs to be witness to that or whoever they're trying to influence with that. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. So that'll be helpful when we see. I think either way it's making an example, but you're right. It's uh, One of them is making a... Making a very public and very, I can't even think of the word, but, but they're different, different categories of examples. Right. I mean, if you find someone, sure, that, that sounds bad, but if you throw someone in jail, I think that drives the point home harder than a fine. Yeah. Cause rich people, sea levels, like a fine is not that big a deal unless it's a pretty significant, you know, million dollar, multi-million dollar fine. Prison is a lot different for them. Right. Even though prison that they go to is a lot different than the prison that you or I would go to. <laughs> it's fair. If you've ever seen Wolf of Wall Street, the ending of that will make sense there. All right. So why does this matter? Well, if they're going to start imprisoning folks for not reporting crimes, this could be pretty significant for companies and the employees who work for them. Again, though, remember to save all your data and roll over on your CISO. Well, one thing I would say, though, when in doubt, contact your legal team. Yeah. Yeah, and and that that was what I had in my notes here for what you should do about it is have a discussion with your in-house lawyers. Determine if you want to change your reporting decisions or not. Again, this one's a little bit different. He took some active steps. He, you know, wrote emails about not talking about it and he had people draw up an NDA that was not true. So this is not this is not exactly analogous to, you know, oh, we had a phishing campaign. John Smith's credentials were compromised and the attackers logged in like it's a it's definitely different it's not a not a one-to-one 
comparison here. So talk to your lawyers, figure out what your company's risk appetite is. And just to reiterate, get this stuff in writing. Oh yeah. Yep. Because if somebody tells you not to report it or that there's a policy saying you're not going to report it, that would be super helpful to have that with a lawyer or with your CISO signature on it, right? Absolutely. And keep store that offsite. No, but would it, because the, the defense I was just following orders doesn't work, does it? So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they're expecting every, like every well, analyst. To what I'm trying to say stuff. though, to, is if you have a le a document from your legal team saying, this is our legal advice hmm. to you. That's fair. That's, yeah. Uh, and you write that down and then they come for you. You pull that document out and say, hey, this is the legal advice I got from the team saying, this is what I should do. I'm not a yeah. lawyer. So I thought that, you know, going to lawyers and getting this legal advice would give me the, the, the correct actions that I should be taking. That makes sense. All right. The second article from Uber is actually a, a more pleasant article and it's titled reducing logging costs by two orders of magnitude using COP and COP stands for compressed log processor, not to be confused with cleaner lubricant preservative, which you use on your rifles. They functionally do about the same thing. Maybe <laughs> from your perspective, but I don't think so. But this is actually from Uber's blog written by a couple of Uber engineers. So they were running into some serious problems with the volume of logs that they had. And this new compression algorithm, which they came across from a paper that was published in July of 2021 entitled CLP Efficient and Scalable Search on Compressed Text Logs, logs by Kirk Rodriguez, Yu Lao, and Dick Ding Wong at the University of Toronto and Wyscope Incorporated. And what they found is they were able to compress their logs by 169 times using the COP tool. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it I actually want to see this in practice, which apparently Uber is actually doing though, because they said they're generating on a busy day, 200 terabytes of log data on a Spark cluster, which I don't even know what that would because Splunk got away from their unlimited license, right? No, they're, I mean, they're still doing an unlimited license. What they're charging for now in their cloud environment is for workload and storage. Okay. Because 200 terabytes a day on for Splunk log ingest would be in, insanely high. Oh yeah. I was actually there. looking at, I was actually looking at both their, how much they say later. They say that uh, later in the article, they say storing three days of up to 200 terabytes a day. So I assume 600 terabytes was costing them $180,000 a year. That is not as much as I thought to store 600 terabytes worth of data. Well, they're using this because they're not using Splunk. They're using this the Spark cluster, they're not paying the ingest cost like you would on a Splunk platform. Yeah, but Splunk Splunk still charges for storage. So Splunk, I think Splunk, I think even the storage charge on Splunk is more than that. <laughs> I'd have to go back and look, but I think it's more than that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't run a, the Splunk platform or haven't run a Splunk platform, so I couldn't, I couldn't speak to that specifically. Uh, but this 200 terabytes that they're talking about is not specifically security dedicated logging either. This is all their logs. They're using for all sorts of troubleshooting and everything. And the problem that they were running into is they were premature, prematurely destroying SSDs because of the amount of writes that they were doing to the SSDs. They got burned out way sooner than they were expecting. So basically, you know, if you buy a piece of hardware, you, you assume a certain level of time that it's going to last and you depreciate it over time. And 
they were burning through these SSDs before they could fully depreciate that hardware. Uh, so they've moved to this CLP in order to attempt to improve that because what they were doing for what they were spending on log storage was overall, it was a hundred or 1.8 million per year. They reduced that to 10 K per year for one month's worth of logs. So yeah. they were only, their retention period was 30 days. Well, hold on, hold on. Their retention period was three days. But they, they, he mentioned that they kept getting people asking them to go to 30 days. And 30, so three days cost them $180,000 a year. 30 days would have cost them $1.8 million a year. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he mentioned, he mentioned that I know he mentioned the 30 days several times, but he said in the beginning, like they were always getting requests to go to 30 days. And they were like, ah, we can't, we can't. I see. I may have understood that, under, misunderstood that because now that they are using CLP, they now are storing 30. 30 days. That's correct. Yeah. Now. now they're doing 30 days. And obviously, this is why Uber is not making money, right? This is why they pay their drivers so poorly. <laughs> Cost of storage. Well, if they if they paid them even better, you know, would they make would they <laughs> still would they uh, actually be making money? No. It sounds like that would increase the or decrease the amount of money they're making. Well, actually, so to be honest, this does start so I'll admit, I had a very shallow take on Uber and Lyft and like, why aren't they making money? Why do they need, you know, 5,000 software engineers or whatever they need? But I guess if they're generating 200 terabytes of log data, yeah, they probably need quite a few engineers to go digging through there to figure out what's going on and just just overhead and administrative. Right. And they said they had 5.38 petabytes of uncompressed informational level unstructured logs, but they were able to take that 5.38 petabytes and compress that down into only 314 terabytes. Or is that 3.4 terabytes? 31.4 terabytes. Jesus, that's ridiculous. That's incredible. That is unreal. Because five is. petabytes, you know, most people don't even work in the petabyte scale, but you know, a terabyte is a thousand gigabytes. And a petabyte is a thousand terabytes. That is insane amount of data. And they've got five of them. And they were able to get that down to 31. Yeah, I mean, 31 terabytes, you could put that on a desktop. You could buy enough SSDs on a desktop to put that. Well, you know what I'm thinking? They had the amount of storage for 5.38 terabytes. And now they only need 31.4. That's how many racks of servers of NAS or, or, SA, or SAN storage that is being unused right now. They can sell it. And that's how they get to make, be profitable this year. I wouldn't hold my breath. I'm sure, Uber will get profit, make profit one day. You know, they did announce, or maybe I heard this on another podcast. They were Uber and Lyft are counting on self-driving cars to become profitable. Mm. They, they become profitable once you stop paying humans. Yeah, that's what I thought. Because yeah. in actually in almost every business, labor generally accounts for approximately 70% of expense. But that doesn't make sense to me. And I'll tell you why. I was talking with my Lyft driver coming back from a business trip last week. And I, and I commented about how it was like $50 because to take the ride home from my airport. He was like, $50? I'm getting like $10 of that. So, because he told me they pay him a flat fee based on the number of miles he drives. So, which I thought they gave them a percentage before. I thought they gave them like 70% of the, of the fee. 
of the fee. But yeah, that's but they're that's playing a per mile cost. That's not yeah, that's what the driver told me. So I don't know, maybe I don't know if he's not I don't know if he was wrong or what, but I was like, holy crap. So an Uber wanted like sixty dollars to drive me home from the airport. So at that point in time, it's almost better to drive myself and park. At least it's cheaper to drive myself and park. Yeah. Well at that rate, if he's getting ten bucks out of fifty, that's twenty percent. Yeah. Uh which I don't know, it doesn't sound terrible. I mean, when you put it from fifty to ten, that sounds awful. But if I were to say I'm going to pay you 20% of the entire cost, it doesn't sound too bad. Well, I mean, yeah, no, no, I get, I get it. Like it was a 20 minute drive to my house. If you said I'm going to pay you $10 for 20 minutes worth of work or 20 minutes worth of driving, like you're like, oh, you know, multiply that out for an hour. That's $30 an hour. That's really good. It's, of course, it's not as simple as that, but it's, yeah, right. I just, I just understand how Lyft and Uber are not making money when they're taking such a huge chunk off the top. But, like I said, I have a shallow understanding of this. Right. Well, maybe you could take a look at their quarterly earnings report and maybe that will give you some better insight. Uh, I care I'm not going to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Back to the, back to the logging stuff. Okay. And the way that they, they do this, and I'm going to quote from the white paper, which will be linked in the show notes that where these engineers got the original idea from. And the white paper says, COP achieves a significantly higher compression ratio than all other commonly used compressors, yet delivers fast search performance that is comparable or even better than Elasticsearch and Splunk Enterprise. In addition, COP outperforms Elasticsearch and Splunk Enterprise's log ingestion performance by over 13x. And we show COP scales to petabytes of logs. COP's gains come from using a tuned domain-specific compression and search algorithm that exploits the significant amount of repetition in text logs, end quote. Yeah, so why CLP versus normal compressors? Well, it, it, David just said, the amount of repetition in text logs. Think to all of your Windows event logs and all of the repeated verbiage, verbiage throughout those logs. Normal compressors aren't great for log data, they may have repetitious, they may see the repetition, but they tend to limit their search for repetition in ways that CLP is deliberately taking advantage of. So they gave, as an example, a log message that's about 80% the same, but it has four variables, the time that it occurred, the host name, the container name, and the container ID and the task name. So what they do is well, for a regular compressor, the repetitive parts are interwoven together. You may see a login log, then you'll see a process start, a process end, a network connection, then a log off. This makes it harder for normal compression to find the similarities. Yeah, and the way that the Splunk Enterprise and Elasticsearch do this is they generate external indexes. <clears throat> and when the, they are doing the searching, it de de decompresses only the chunks of data that may contain logs matching the search phrase. And these indexes generally need to be stored in memory or in fast random access storage for speed. So, but CLP identifies the repetitive parts specifically and compresses based on that. Each message is a row and each variable is a column. So that, that log message I said before, that 80% that's the same goes in one column. And then each of the four variables is in four other columns. And then it deduplicates on the columns for the parts that are repetitive using dictionaries. 
And this allows searches to function on the compressed data because you're looking at the dictionaries and you're looking at the tables. Normal compression requires you to decompress and then search, which is why whenever you try to pull stuff up on a, I imagine this is why when you try and pull stuff up and Splunk that's, that's on a cold storage location, it takes forever. Yeah. I mean, imagine if they were able, if Splunk were able to take this and, and or Elasticsearch were able to take this thing, same thing and weave it into their data storage, this would be huge. Yep. But unfortunately, this is basically all custom. There's a <laughs> GitHub, there's a GitHub page that has the app and all that. At least my understanding is you're not going to be able to take this and just automatically replace your Splunk, your Elasticsearch with this. It's going to take a bit of doing to get it done. Uber's doing it in two different phases. They've completed phase one. And they're going to be moving on to phase two soon if they have not already started phase two. But considering just if 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 this version ratio that Uber's found of going from five petabytes to 31 terabytes can be utilized by virtually any organization, this is massive. Yeah, because when we're talking IR data, we're frequently talking much longer timeframes. We had a, we read a report a couple months ago where the average time to detect an incident is still 277 days. Uh, so your IR team is always asking for more data. I have a, there's an IR guy I know who wants to increase his company's storage to two years. And the answer is no, because it's too expensive. But if you're doing something like this, you might be able to get two years of data in there for a reasonable cost. Yeah, and more data. So there are some so there's there's some logging that is being foregone because of the cost of this as well, which is being excluded. So right now there's oh, this man. is decreases the amount of trade-offs you have to have. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's uh, that's one of those things it. where you look at every source of data, you're like, oh, I would love to have, you know, process starts and stops and network connections on every system. Well, are you willing to pay the, you know, hundred thousand dollars it costs to store that or whatever it is? And do you have to convince somebody else to do it for a data source that's only applicable to IR? Yeah, it's tough. Right. So. I mean, like I said, the, the bar is kind of high based on reading this for COP. But if you have dedicated engineers, I would definitely have them take a look at this because this could be huge. Because if you're spending millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars a year on Splunk or Elasticsearch, or whatever your storage, whatever your log management tool is, it may be worth hiring. It may be even worth hiring some engineers at a couple hundred thousand dollars to build this out over the course of a couple of years. Because in the long run, this will save you orders of magnitude more than the expense of hiring those engineers or dedicating your current engineering resources to implement this. Yeah, I mean, they said themselves. And again, this is a little confusing because at one point they say three days worth and at one point they say 30 days worth, but they did say that if they had stored 30 days worth of data, it would have cost them $1.8 million and it went down to $10,000. That is worth paying an engineer or two to work on this. Yeah. But one thing I would stress though, when you hire those people, they need to make that, they need to make it and, and they need to come up with an enterprise solution that's maintainable over time and not something that you know, when those people leave your organization or move on, that the entirely entirely falls apart. And that's the problem with some in-house constructed tools. If you do not plan for the longevity of that, once your your the creation, the engineers that created it uh, leave, then it falls into disrepair, and you end up with all sorts of problems with that. What I would like to see is someone like Splunk or Elasticsearch, Elasticsearch take this on and build this into a COTS product. Yeah. 
Yep, they should uh, spend it off. Oh, they can sell this on the side. Maybe this will help them make. Ah, dang it! I said I was going to stop making jokes on that, didn't I? Stop harping <laughs> on uh, Uber's inability to make money. Hey, well, actually, that is not a bad idea, to be honest. Because if <laughs> if you look, just look at Amazon, right? Amazon before they got into the cloud computing market, they were not profitable either. Yeah, and it they that was. Really, that was a white paper written by a couple of engineers within Amazon said, hey, we're doing this thing, but we have this excess capacity or whatever. We could scale this out and we can make some money off of it. So I would not say it's it's not outside the realm of possibility that Uber could turn this into a profit profit making venture if they spent the cycles on it. And Uber, because it is a technology company, they have software developers, they write software. It's not as if it would be a complete stretch for them to create a different kind of software. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like General Motors saying, hey, we're going to start writing software <laughs> for people. Yeah. You know, it's a completely different concept. So I think that would be awesome. That but take a look at the white paper. It gets into a, a little bit more details that we weren't going to talk about here. If nothing else, just take a look at the introduction and uh, read through that. It's pretty good. But that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.